The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This week on Chatter, Jonathan Rausch of the Brookings Institution, author, public intellectual, student of liberalism and democratic institutions, and all-around interesting guy. The reason for this work, well, one reason is that I've always been curious about religion, being an atheistic homosexual Jew. There is no shortage of people in the uh, of Latter-day Saints who would like the church to be more proactively hardcore on culture issues. And by the way, there's also no shortage of people who are leaving the church because they think it's too conservative, especially among the young. I think there's a model in Utah for a conservative Christianity that is committed to Madisonian-style pluralism. It's not the first place you would expect to look, but there it is. And we have both liberals and Christians, I think, have a ton to learn. Mr. Jonathan Rausch, I want to start with how we should think about the major unifying themes of your career. You have, I didn't know there were any. Well, maybe the answer is there are not. You've um, written about happiness. You've written about, uh, I'm just thinking of books here, about speech uh, and enforcement of, of illiberal attitudes by both right and left. You've written about the history of gay liberation movements. Um, what, what are the things that bind the Rausch uh, oeuvre together? So, well, first of all, thank you for, for being, uh, for having me uh, join you today in, I guess, the Jungle Studio. This is the deforested Jungle Studio. It used to be the Jungle Studio, but then COVID came and all the plants died. And now this is <laughs> like a vision of what the Amazon will look like it's, if it's, we don't do something about it. I just want to inform your your listeners, it is pretty stark and there is a jet black shag rug hanging in front of a window. You all should pray for the health and safety of the giant black shag rug. <laughs> well, if it got any closer to me, I would be afraid of it. Let's just put it that way. Um, I would have been a talented academic, but I realized around age 21 
that the idea of specializing in one thing um, appalled me. And that's why I became a journalist, so that I could do any damn thing that seemed interesting. I want to pause you on that because I did a very similar thing, um, but it was because I was a dilettante. Um, and it seems to me there's sort of two reasons you can – one is that you're kind of a butterfly who wants to do the any damn thing. The other is that you're you know, sort of Aristotle, right, and you, you, you are genuinely – or Jefferson, you're genuinely interested in or deep in a huge range of areas. One of the things that interests me about you, about your – is that you're actually not shallow like I am on this range of things. You actually know, I think the technical term is a veritable shitload about a lot of things. And so my question is, when when when, when did you say, all right, all right, 21, I don't want to specialize in any one thing. I want to specialize deeply in all things. Well, I don't know about specializing deeply in all things. I, I do recall writing an aphorism when I was about 25, which went, I don't want to be a big shot. I don't want to be a hot shot. I want to be a deep shot. And that kind of sums up my career. There are, so I'm not a little butterfly that just hops from, from flower to flower randomly. There are a few flowers I prefer. My very first internship was at National Journal. And then my, my second job was there writing about how government works or not works during the 80s, the Reagan period, a very interesting period. So a major theme ever since has been understanding government, not so much politics, but government and how to make it work better. And that's a big stream of my work. Related to it, another big stream has been understanding what I call liberal social systems. That's markets, um, liberal democracies and what I call liberal science, you know, our system for finding truth. And they have a lot in common, such as that they're all based on rules rather than rulers, depersonalized, far-flung systems based on rules and trust. And it's very hard to make those work. And since the late 1980s, I have been uh, writing one thing or another about the pathologies uh, that can afflict those systems never more relevantly than right now. And then a third kind of unrelated theme, but not really, is I like science. I like discoveries. And when I find something that seems interesting that no one's writing about, such as the fact that time itself, just the mere passage of time, can drive our life satisfaction downward in middle age and then surprisingly upward in old age, I think I should write about that. Or, for example on um, the revolution that nuclear power is, is undergoing. And that's just fun and curiosity and the fact that I love being around innovators and new ideas, and I hate being around old, soggy, uh, pessimistic, angry stuff like the culture wars. Yeah, so um, that is a, a really interesting self-account, and I want to explore it a little bit, specifically the hating being around uh, old, soggy, uh, uh, pessimistic stuff like culture wars. Um, we've both been in Washington a long time, uh, you a little bit longer than, than I. And the pessimistic Washingtonian who has a uh, uh, – who sort of trades masks of pessimism and cynicism – 
and has a kind of unified field theory explanation for the decline of American society, is a persona who we've both gotten to know very well over a long period of time. Yes, and we could name a few if we were inclined. If we were inclined, we both stay away from those people as a general matter, but they do seem to proliferate and have lots of intellectual children. Um, I'm curious when you decided that's really boring. The, the, you know, there are such people in every generation and they're essentially always wrong and they don't seem to learn from the fact that the previous generation of them looks pretty stupid now. When did you, when, when did you decide that? Well, we could go to Google and put a date on it because my first actual recollection uh, on this subject is the publication of a book by, I think, Christopher Lash called The Culture of Narcissism. And I'm sure he's a smart guy, and it was a big book that sold, sold well. But I and he recall, wrote it over and over and over again. <laughs> I recall picking up that book somewhere, probably a bookstore, which existed in those days, and thinking, this is a pile of steaming bullshit, not because it's wrong, but because there's no refutable proposition in it. And I just realized that the, that the, the genre of cultural criticism— in which, you know, you bloviate about the royal we, we, as in we are narcissistic, we are ungrateful, never clearly whether you're talking about we, me personally, or we, the entirety of America, or for that matter, we, the cosmos, that this was just very much not to my liking. Um, I had an empirical mindset that was bolstered by my training in journalism, uh, starting from my intern, well, from my college newspaper and then an internship and then a reporting job, which you also started with a reporting job, that treats you to put facts in what you write. And that if you have something to say, it should be a refutable something to say to which evidence should be adduced. Um, and that's kind of what you had to do most of the time in order to have a career in journalism in the 80s and 90s. You had to do at least some of that for some period of time. We then entered a world where it was very possible to have a career as a public intellectual or journalist by starting right out at age 22 saying preposterous but cantankerous and provocative things, not actually knowing anything, not actually checking anything. Um, and that's actually become a prevalent business model right now. And I promise I will never do it. Except about uh, introverts. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, so, uh, low blow there, low Mr. Extrovert. <laughs> no, I, I am actually a high-functioning introvert. Um, but um, jokes about your famous essay, Caring for Your Introvert, aside, um, you have actually doubled down in the other direction. And the typical Jonathan Rausch article is data-heavy, is research heavy, both your own research and often detailed uh, uh, and quite involved summaries of other people's research, as well as uh, interviews, 
If you're not picking up the phone, you're not doing the job. And so my question is, you know, Steve Martin had this line about his career that in the 70s, all the stand-up comics were influenced by Lenny Bruce. They were all bitter and angry and it was all after the Vietnam War and they were all cursing a lot. And he said, this is going to pass and I'm going to be right there. I'm going to be silly. Um, <laughs> when And I thought that was like a room. Like, so when did you say, OK, this is not going to pass. This is the trend of the future. Um, bitter, grouchy, angry 22 year olds who don't know anything. And I am going to be right there when it doesn't pass. I am going to be uh, deep and data heavy and I'm going to do the work and know something and I'm just going to cut against the entire trend of the generation. I, I never resolved to do that. I just resolved from an early age not to be Christopher Lash um, and to tell people when I write things that I didn't know when I started writing and that they might not know when they start reading because it seems to me that that provides genuine value added of a type that's that's very hard to gainsay and turns out to be quite valuable. When when I counsel young people entering journalism or public commentary, the thing I most often say is try to develop some genuine expertise in a topic before you're 30. You can do that in two or three or five years. And if you actually know something better than most other people know it, the world will beat a path to your door. Whereas if you're just staying stuff because it gets attention, you'll have a meteoric but brief career. So I just kept doing what I did because nothing else is interesting. And then we went through that phase, which you well remember, when suddenly the internet came and traditional journalism and legacy media were out to lunch, knew nothing, dinosaurs, pathetic, dying and deserved it. And then we all looked around about, I don't know, a year or two ago and realized the New York Times is still here, but Vice Media is not. And unfortunately, BuzzFeed's not. And wait a minute, maybe we were right all along about the intrinsic value of protein in our information diet. So I kind of feel it's like I just kept doing what I was doing and the world slightly came to its senses, or am I being Pollyanna? Well, maybe a bit of both, right? Like a part of the world um, came to its senses, sort of, and a part of the world completely lost its mind, um, and or several parts of the world completely lost its mind. But no, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think lawfare, by the way, is an interesting example of the same tendency that, you know, we, it wasn't like the New York Times is still there, but you could not have built something like Lawfare in a, uh, in a pre-internet age. You just, you know, there wasn't the, you couldn't reach the audience to sustain it. You couldn't do it in real time. The fixed costs of production would have been just crazy high. Now you can. And, and, and so and it I, succeeds because it's 98% protein. Right. Um, now, I remember the founding of Lawfare. I remember when one Benjamin Wittes strolled into my office one day and said, Jack Goldsmith, Bobby Chesney, and I are starting a blog. 
And that's, that's all it was. It was a blog. To the best of my recollection, Lawfare was not supposed to actually succeed. It was supposed to be a little project for fun by some people. But lo and behold, it turns out when you get genuine experts to write on subjects of genuine importance in ways that focus at, on the topic at hand, guess what? People want it. To my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, but to my knowledge, Lawfare has never published a clickbait headline on the order of, you'll never believe what the Supreme Court did Tuesday. Well, you know, it's funny because we have a, uh, a, a fake clickbait headline that um, uh, we joke about um, a lot, which is, you know, during the early Trump administration, uh, we found that whenever Trump was in the headline, the traffic would spike. And so uh, a certain Lawfare editor and I had this joke that we were going to call all Lawfare articles Trump, 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 XXX, girls, 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 XXX. And that would be the, the perfect the one law, headline, the for, one all headline for all Lawfare articles. Um, all right. So with all of that as prelude, you have been spending a lot of time over the last – several years thinking about the kind of tectonic plate level of American political dysfunction, the ideological layer, the political party layer, and the sociological layer. And um, most recently, you have been interested in uh, what's going on in the evangelical community. Um, So, with the background that you just gave us, that you see interesting things that you have questions about, and you try to answer those questions for yourself and turn the window, turn the mirror uh, on to a readership, uh, tell us about what's interesting you in the evangelical community and its relationship with democracy and, and why, are, why are you spending time on it? I should stipulate that this work is about the white evangelical community. The black church is, is very different and not in the same kind of place at all. The reason for this work um, is, well, one reason is that I've always been curious about religion. Being an atheistic homosexual Jew, I, in my youth, I had a very, very negative attitude toward Christianity. That changed as a result of friendships with some, some very positive wonderful Christians who took it seriously and were not cruel and hypocritical. The less personal reason is that, as I mentioned earlier, a continuous theme of my career has been understanding what goes wrong with liberal social systems like democratic governments. And in the Trump years, as it became clear that Trump's base, his core base, was disproportionately made up of white conservative evangelical Protestants, 80 plus percent of whom supported him in 2016 and again 2020, and who supported him despite the fact that there wasn't a single tenet of Christianity that he didn't egregiously violate, I began to realize something very peculiar was happening in Christianity um, and that, that white evangelical Christianity has has been moving at an alarming pace toward MAGA and away from pluralism um, and doing so 
not because of Christian belief, doctrine, and scripture, but in spite of Christian belief, doctrine, and scripture. And it began to seem to me that that today's political crisis has to be understood as also partly a, a religious crisis, a crisis that's happening within Christianity and is spilling over in toxic ways to politics. So what do you mean by that? I mean, at one level, that point is a little bit obvious in the sense that anytime you have a group of people who purport to speak for morality, uh, uh, enthusiastic about somebody who is grotesquely and visibly immoral, uh, you can say, well, there's a crisis and some some sort of ideological crisis going on with them. Um, but I think you're saying something else, too. And I, I guess I want you to unpack what, why is this more complicated than the evangelical church? Is, you know, the, the, leave the crisis to the David French's and the, the uh, Russ Moore's and the people who are within the movement who can critique it from the inside – um, and who can argue with it, the only observation from the outside is that this is not a group of people that speaks uh, for anything other than its own political interests, uh, irrespective of their religious significance. They're a bunch of hypocrites, and that's the end of it. Why is the story more complicated than that? Well, there, there are a few things that need explaining. It should have been a lot harder than it was for the same group of people who insisted vocally that character matters in a president in the 1990s when Bill Clinton lied about having sex with a White House intern to completely flip in the biggest, most egregious possible way. Um, that requires more of an explanation than just, well, hypocrisy happens. Um, so I think that required some explanation. Another is that I think the Trump era revealed a gap between white evangelical Protestantism and liberal pluralism that was much bigger than we thought. We, I think you and I knew that Christian nationalism, for example, was out there, but we mostly thought it was a fairly small group of extremists, and in its extreme form, it still is. But I would guess that you would not have predicted that this politician— would become the darling of the evangelical movement and that the more illiberal he became, the more he lied, the more he cheated, the more corrupt he was, the more he called for things like overthrowing the Constitution, the more they would like him. That speaks to something going on in Christianity, which could just be ordinary human hypocrisy. But there seems to be something deeper going on. I wanted to know what that was. And that has forced me to learn a lot of new terms, of which maybe the most interesting is the term spiritual formation or discipleship. Have you come across that term? Uh, no. Well, neither had I, but it is, it is a, a big deal in Christianity. I'll, I'll explain this poorly. Um, some of your Christian, Christian listeners may have to, to forgive me, but this is a vocabulary that I learned recently and very much as an outsider. So spiritual formation 
or discipleship is the idea that what the church should be doing is shaping the character of the followers of Jesus Christ in the mold of, of Jesus Christ and Christian teaching, and that there are a handful of these key teachings. One of them is, be like me, imitate Jesus. Another is, forgive each other. Um, and the third, I'll, I'm, I always have Rick Perry moments, the third I'll come back to in a moment. Um, but these, these are the things which the church is meant to inculcate. Um, and these are not supposed to be things which depend on politics. You know, will they work? Will they get someone elected? Will they own the liberals? Christians are supposed to be formed in these things because that's what God wants. Be like Jesus. Forgive each other. Oh, the third is be not afraid. What you've seen in the church seems to be a wholesale failure of spiritual formation in which instead of forming its parishioners in those core values, it's letting the parishioners form the church. So we see the rise of what I call the church of fear. This is a secularized, as Russell Moore says, or I would even say paganized version of the church in which you're there really more because of politics than because of Jesus. You're there because of the culture wars and because you watch Fox News and you're being Christian is your way of expressing that political identity. For example, when Christianity is no longer up to the job of spiritual formation in the core values of Christianity, a couple things begin to go wrong. One is it turns out that liberal democracy relies on values like not lying, uh, like forgiveness. Sometimes we lose elections and we have to be willing to move on, such as be not afraid. Um, we have to understand that it's not a flight 93 election and that it's the end of everything if Joe Biden or someone else gets elected. When Christianity is transmitting the opposite of those messages, be maximally afraid, Politics is, is retribution. The last thing you do is forgive and be as unchristlike as you possibly can. It undermines liberal democracy. So that becomes one implication in the external world of the failure of spiritual formation. The other, which I can't speak to as well, but which Russell Moore and David French and others do, is this undermines the witness of Jesus Christ. When Christianity stops looking like Christianity and starts looking like the gospel of Tucker Carlson, um, no one else is going to step forward and disciple American Christians, still by far the predominant group in these values. And it turns out Lawfare and Brookings cannot do that. We're just not in that business of discipling people in those core virtues. All right. So long answer. Sorry, I filibustered. No, no, not it's at heavy all. Heavy stuff. So you have also, over the last few years, spent a lot of time with the Mormon Church, um, uh, which you've come away with a 
a quite different impression of in terms of its engagement with culture war issues. Um, as the atheistic Jewish uh, gay guy um, uh, who's been hanging out with the Mormon church, what's, what, what, what drew you there and what's, uh, what's your impression of the LDS uh, folks relative to the, uh, to the uh, white evangelicals? So I am not historically particularly a friend of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as it now multisyllabically prefers to be called. In fact, my first editor out of college was a lovely young woman who wrote a searing book about the abuse she, she suffered within the church and subsequently tragically committed suicide. And the church's teaching on homosexuality is, I think, cruel and bigoted, though their treatment of gay people is far more humane than it used to be, for which I'm grateful. Also, in 2008, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints led a massive and very effective campaign in California to overturn same-sex marriage. Um, and that did not go over well in gay world, and I'm putting that mildly. So that's where I started out coming from. And then in 2015, seemingly out of the blue, in Utah, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints officially, which doesn't happen every day, and conservatives in the state legislature and the local LGBT groups hold a press conference announcing that they have all agreed on a compromise that extends anti-discrimination protections to LGBT people in Utah and also includes some specific exemptions for religious um, churches and nonprofits. You know, so BYU won't have to include married same-sex couples in its, in its uh, married student housing. And I'm, what the F? Where did that come from? And it turns out that the church has done a 180. Uh, it looked at the shitstorm it endured after Prop 8. It looked at its role in society, said, is this really what we want to do? And decided that no, it wasn't. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to me or most other people outside the church, the church has a long-standing theological basis for pluralism, for the idea that um, they don't believe in original sin. They believe that we're born innocent and learn to be good in the real world, the schoolhouse of the real world, by making moral choices, free will. But in order to have free will, you have to have choices to make. So they believe that there should be choices, good and bad. And as long as the church can make its own choices, Ben Wittes and Jonathan Rausch should be free to make other kinds of choices. That's pretty close to Madisonian pluralism. Um, and that's deep in the theology. That's not like what the, uh, what the public affairs office in Washington tells the church to say. That goes back to Joseph Smith, the first prophet. So they have a whole theology around the virtue of negotiation, compromise, and mutual accommodation. They see that as something God wants them to do. So I'm looking at all of this going on and continuing, by the way, until last year when the church played an important role in passing the Respect for Marriage Act, which engraves same-sex marriage into federal law, 
even though the church opposes doing that. You can't imagine, you know, right doing that. So I'm looking at all this and thinking, okay, we've got to understand this because here is a church which is not surrendering its identity to the culture of the outside world. It's, you know, not becoming a kind of, you know, consumeristic church. It's as conservative on social issues as it ever was. And yet it is taking the opposite path of white evangelical Protestants. White evangelicals are hunkering down, becoming oppositional, fearful. Um, they're, they're making the church narrower and sharper every day. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is modeling the exact opposite. And, and by the way, as they'll tell you, they're getting some brickbats from the Protestant white evangelical community because they're taking this approach. So I thought that had to be explored. And what I came away with was I think there's a model in Utah for a conservative Christianity that is committed to Madisonian-style pluralism. It's not the first place you would expect to look, but there it is. And we have both liberals and Christians, I think, have a ton to learn from this. All right. So I want to focus a little bit on the disparity between the white evangelical reaction and the LDS reaction. Uh, but before I do, I want to ask you to go back to a point that you made when I first raised evangelicalism. And your response was, I'm talking about white evangelicalism. The black church is a different thing. How much of this is really about conservative white people with a religious gloss on it, but this is fundamentally white identity politics, white conservative identity politics, uh, often with a, uh, you know, of a certain populist bent that, the, that people are kind of bending the church to um, rather than anything that actually resides in evangelicalism. Uh, that is clearly a big chunk of what's going on. That's what Russell Moore calls, calls secularization. He said that, that the white evangelical church has basically picked up everything from the religious right except the religion. Um, yeah, and, and much greater minds than I have, have been doing a lot of research and finding that the white evangelical church has been kind of sorting itself out so that a lot of people, not huge numbers, but a substantial number of people who are what has been called the church within the church, the people who are deeply discipled in the ways of Jesus and really don't want to come to church to do the culture wars or partisan politics, they're drifting away or fragmenting and starting different churches. There's been an influx of people who call themselves evangelical, but often, rarely, well, I shouldn't say often, rarely, but rarely go to church. Some of them barely go at all. So what you're seeing is an influx of people for whom the label evangelical seems to be less a spiritual signifier than it is a identity signifier. It's what you increasingly call yourself that's respectable if you're a white MAGA supporter. Um, that, of course, 
has profound effects on, on the church. One of the things that I've learned in the course of doing this research is this is not primarily a crisis of leadership. There have been those in the past, obviously in the Catholic Church, but also when you and I were coming up in the 80s and 90s, we would see these hypocritical, politicized church leaders like, you know, Jim Baker. There was a scandal a week. What we're seeing now is of a different character. We this, still, is, this is grassroots driven. Yeah, it's grassroots driven. I mean, yes, there's, there are always problems in leadership. Um, no question about that. But this particular phenomenon of politicization is being driven mostly by, by the pews. And pastors are bewildered, demoralized. They're feeling dragged along by this. They're not sure how to transmit the word of God to people who are kind of not really there for that. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. 
as this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress as I do every time that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So how do you explain one explanation for the difference between the evangelical community and the Mormon community is that one is a top-down hierarchy and the other is not. And so if you want to move the evangelical world, you got to buy Newsmax, Fox News, you know, you got to, you, you got to address a whole lot of grassroots people. If you want to move the Mormon church and say you're an LGBT organization in Utah, you have a few years of quiet meetings with some senior uh, uh, church people, and then all of a sudden you have a press conference, and the flock kind of does what it's told. Um, another explanation is that these institutions, as you alluded to, these movements are theologically and culturally very, very different from one another, um, uh, quite quite apart from their leadership and their vision of, of their place. One, one is self-consciously a minority culture and therefore has a, has a need to have a place in a pluralistic society. The other is self-consciously a majority culture, even though it isn't actually a majority anymore and hasn't been for quite a while. Um, what do you think is behind the the disparate manner in which these different churches have responded to the last few years? 
Well, you have just listed them very accurately yourself. Um, so yes to all of the above. Um, there, there is no shortage of people in the uh, of Latter Day Saints who would like to be like the church to be more proactively hardcore on culture issues. And by the way, there's also no shortage of people who are leaving the church because they think it's too conservative, especially among the young. Uh, but because it is a hierarchical organization and because the president and prophet of the church is considered to be in direct communication with God, you're, you're not allowed to really say, well, we disagree with that. Um, that gives the church an element of authority, whereas, as was often repeated to me and became very clear over in white Protestant land, there's a crisis of authority, as there is in so much of society. People are, why, why should we believe this pastor? Or if we don't like this pastor, we fire him and get another one. It's just that simple. Um, where does authority come from in the Protestant church? Well, that's a damn good question. People have been asking that for, oh, 600 years. It's a foundational question. So there is that structural difference, and it's important. But I came away thinking it doesn't all boil down to Mormons salute and march uphill and Protestants don't um, because theology also matters. Um, it's, it's not that someone's making a decision in Salt Lake City and everyone's blindly obeying it. It's that partly because of its status as a persecuted minority religion, and partly because of the structure of its theology, the church, starting with teaching of people in, the, in kindergarten, all the way up through mission and then in church on Sundays, emphasizes the, that they live in a world where they should not be trying to dominate others. That's, that's baked in. I mean, even we Jews have a narrative that actually we're supposed to be in charge, right? We had a state initially. We subjected those who were not members of it uh, in many cases. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is actually against that. Um, and that, as I mentioned, goes all the way back to Joseph Smith. One of the first things that he did as mayor of Nauvoo, Illinois, when the, when the church set up its town there, it did some illiberal things, but among the things it did was announce a public ordinance saying that anyone of every religion should be able to serve in any governing capacity, and it named Jews, Mormons, and everybody, uh, Jews, Muslims, and everyone else. So it's not just an imposition. It's, it's based in values. So the question for, for Protestants, okay, granted there's no authority, but what if the church could develop and teach a theology which is not about dominion. It's not about we're entitled to rule, and if not, everything screw up. Um, can the church do that? It's a big question, right? Can it adapt to minority status, which is what confronts it right now? Right. It's a, it's a very hard crisis for any church. I mean, what the Catholic Church went through in ceasing over many hundreds of years to be a sovereign power, right, in 
in large numbers in large numbers of square miles of the Italian peninsula. Um, so I want to, though, push back on the idea that there's deep theology here, not with no disrespect to Mormon theology that about which I know very little. Um, my point is not actually about the substance of the theology, but you're describing here evangelical theology that means nothing. Um, and the evangelical church gets subsumed by politics and political identity and, and its theology gets thrown out the window with respect to human virtue, with respect to character formation, with respect to – and on the other hand, that the Mormon church is, in, is, is systemically guided by this theology. And it seems to me and, and that the, a big part of the answer to my question lies in the theology. And it seems to me it's hard to have those at the same time, right? You could just as easily, you know, why, why is it the, the white evangelicals who are being overtaken by, you know, secularization and their po political interests and uh, not and, – and the Mormon church – which you know could have a you know could have a culture war attitude toward gays and get away with it um, and did for a long time um, is now uh, uh, sucking in more Madisonian air. It seems to me the the answer can't be that Mormon theology means something and evangelical theology doesn't mean something. Well, so what kind of answer are you looking for? Sociologically, the answer that people go to, which I think is certainly true, is the one you've alluded to, which is in white Protestantism, um, you have a faith that believes that it founded America, which it pretty much did, and that simply took its prevalence in the culture for granted until about 20 years ago. When I was a kid, you know, Catholics were kind of weird and Jews were put up with, and atheists, overt atheists, were not quite unheard of, but very rare. For everyone else, part of introducing yourself in the 60s and 70s was asking, where do you go to church? Maybe in Arizona. Maybe in Arizona. <laughs> not on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Well, there's that, but that's a different <laughs> conversation. It was just assumed that you were part of this milieu of, of white Protestantism. Now, that came in many different gradations and varieties, of, of course. But sociologically, there is a degree of dismay and panic that goes with the fact that Christianity will soon be a minority faith in religion. Now, no other faith will be larger, but uh, practicing Christians will be, will be under 50%. And it doesn't help that white evangelicals are doing everything they can to hasten that trend by allying themselves with some of the most um, hypocritical, uh, cruel, and bigoted forces in our society. That's driving the next generation away. Um, so sociologically, yeah, there's if, if what you're saying is um, that this is driven by something other than just theology, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, when I ask people what the outcome is, experts— most, very, f not many people have very high hopes for a ultimately graceful and successful adaptation of the white evangelical church to minority status, to a world 
in which it has to accept a need to be to compromise, um, to have forbearance, to lose elections, to be just another voice in the tapestry of American life. Most people predicted it's going to be a lot harder than that and a lot uglier than that. We'll see even more of what we've been seeing. Um, that may be true. However, take this for what it's worth. There are still a whole lot of white evangelicals who don't like what they see happening in the church, who know that it is not in accord with the teachings of their Lord and Savior, who want to change it. Uh, that includes large numbers of actual pastors in the church who want to get back to the work of the soul. It also includes some people like the aforementioned David French, Russell Moore, and a theologian uh, named Curtis Chang, who are embarked on a project right now. It will debut in December called The After Party. I don't get the name, but there it is. But what that's doing is creating a curriculum for pastors and for the small groups, which are the, the heart of the evangelical church-going experience, which is discipling them in a Christ-like way of doing politics. It's saying extremely important message and one which I have some hope for. Look, as David French puts it, it won't do to say, I may be an asshole on Twitter, but you should see me in the soup kitchen. <laughs> Christianity is a single unified garment. And if you're discipled in private conduct that is Christ-like, you should also be discipled in public conduct that is Christ-like, which means you can oppose or favor public policies of whatever type, but you can't do it in the ways that certain, certain members of, of well, that, that, that trolls uh, are doing it. And they're going to try to teach this. And their point is pastors haven't known what to say. They've been deer in headlights. They're not trained to deal with a situation like the crisis they're confronting. Let's begin filling, them that, filling that gap. Might so, work, right? I'm not going to say it won't work. Well, there is no chance of good things happening without the attempt. Yes. Um, so there is a church and it is the largest church in the United States that we haven't talked about um, and it is the Catholic Church uh, which uh, is significantly more politically diverse than white evangelicals but is also uh, uh, you know the conservative end of which has not actually uh, had a lot of defenses either against the same temptations that have uh, that you're describing in 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 the um, in the evangelical world. Uh, where does the Catholic Church fit into this discussion? So I pretty much left the Catholic Church out of my calculation, out of my research, and I did that for a reason, which is the Catholic Church is having all kinds of issues of its own. Uh, those are very evident right now with, a, you know, to my astonishment, is it a bishop in Texas who's basically saying the Pope has his head up his ass? I didn't think Catholics could actually do that. Um, to say nothing of the other scandals and, you know, the widespread loss of membership in the U.S. and so on. But here's the thing. Catholics are not the core of the MAGA base. They look 
like most other Americans in terms of being politically divided and having multiple wings. So, and they're also not the prevalent religious tradition in America. They're important, but they're not the group that has historically set the tone for what people think of as the Christian way of doing politics. So for that reason, since my ultimate interest in this is not just, not primarily the status of Christianity, those Christians will have to figure that out. My interest is in the spillover part that's endangering liberal democracy. And there the action is white evangelical Protestants. That's where Christian nationalism, which means different things to different people, but is a pretty sinister thing on the whole. That's where that's boiling up. That's where you were seeing the crosses and other Christian regalia that was brought to the Capitol on January 6th, 2021, and the many people who were using Christian symbolism um, uh, in the attempt to overthrow the government is coming from. And although those types of extremists are minority factions, it is not an exaggeration to say that white, that, that MAGA has become essentially the house politics of the white Protestant church. So that's where I'm focused. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know that you are. I, I think the Catholic church has, has uh, you know, certainly the, um, it has certain stabilizing authority structures that, uh, you know, that are not available in place where you can fire your own, uh, uh, fire your pastor if he's not MAGA enough for you. They also have, uh, as you say, they are distracted by certain other matters going on. Um, that said, you know, when you look around the world at the MAGA uh, elite, you know, the they're, not all of them are, are evangelical. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Catholics uh, who... In, in there as well, as well as, you know, um, uh, 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 others. So I, 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 I don't know what the, what the role of, of, of the Catholic Church is in here. So I, I, I want to talk about violence because a lot of the things that you're describing, uh, you're actually interested in them because, uh, not because you're interested in Christianity per se, but because you're interested in the interaction with liberal democracy and at the at the bad end of a lot of the uh, uh, pathologies that you're describing as violence, um, and so I'm I'm curious how you think about when you think about Christian nationalism, when you think about the uh, radicalization of white evangelical churches, how far away from violence are are, how worried about violence are you? Well, um, I'm certainly worried about it if we're talking about the extremist fringe, which showed up on January 6th. And, and by the way, circling back to a point that, that we both emphasized earlier, which is very important, those people claim and adopt Christian symbolism, but they're pagan. Sure. They're just using the symbols. Uh, what they really stand for is a kind of vision of white civilizational supremacy, uh, which they call Christianity. Um, so among that group, yes, I'm very worried about violence, and I'll continue to be worried about it. 
Um, and I'm very glad that about, what, 1,200 of them have been sentenced for the crimes that they have committed. They're not all Christian nationalists, but there's some overlap. In terms of the, the broader Christian community, I don't think violence is, is the issue. I don't, I don't see much of it. I don't really, I, I see it valorized some, but not very much. You know, this weird thing that Michael Flynn is doing with his, his national, what does he call that tour? Do you remember? I don't know. So he's going around from city to city uh, holding these rallies in which he says very, very inflammatory things about the government and Christians' duty in the name of God to do all kinds of awful things. Um, but for the most part, it's, it's not a violence question for me. It's more a question of can white evangelicals, the white Protestant community, get back to doing something more of the job which liberal Democrats and pluralists need it to do, which is discipling people in values, in those values of Christianity, which are both core to Christianity and essential to liberalism. America is kind of unusual because in Europe, religion has been constantly at odds with the stability and sustainability of, of governance. Um, there's some pretty obvious wars we can talk about. Weirdly, America, until recently, has been the exception. Tocqueville came and picked up on this. He said, actually, they rub along well, well they, they rub along together quite well here, religion and government. And that's because, for the most part, with big exceptions, but for the most part, in many ways, Christianity was emphasizing those tenets of religion, which are compatible and supportive of the kind of government that we had. Big exceptions. They're terrible on slavery. Okay, I get it. Terrible on gays, on some of the values issues. But on the constitutional issues, we didn't have to worry about them every morning. Now we do. All right. Let me make the opposite argument, though, because, yeah, I've been reading Beverly Gage's uh, incredible biography of J. Edgar Hoover. And one of the things that um, – she describes is how inculcated Hoover was in uh, a kind of vision of uh, white event, white Protestantism uh, that was really laced with um, lost cause Southern mythology that had a very rigidly defined sense of racial hierarchy, a very rigidly defined sense of masculinity, um, all of the things oh, – oh, and really actually didn't believe in the, uh, you know, the sort of right of mere governments to get in the way of this stuff and, and hence things like the Klan. Hence. And so one could argue that at every stage of the last 150 years – the white evangelical community in the United States has been a bulwark of whatever the contemporary vision of, you know, far-right conservatism of its day was. And, you know, whether that was uh, um, uh, during the civil rights era, right, whether it's in – uh, in 
the 20s and 30s, you know, whatever the vision was that you would associate with MAGA now was more or less what the evangelical community, when, when, the pot, when in the late 80s it was all focused on morals stuff, which translated to gays. Um, uh, at, but at every point, the, the secularization process that w- was, you know, you, you, the, the, the church was essentially representing the, the, the political uh, far right of the moment and that the current moment isn't really very different except for the fact that the current far right of the moment is so crazy? Well, that's a big except. Um, An interesting question is whether in the past we saw the church's insistence, for example, in the Clinton era that character matters as putting some kind of brakes on the most depraved behavior. Um, J. Edgar Hoover was guilty of many things, but attempting to overthrow the U.S. government was not one of them. And as a homosexual, I will be the very first to sign up to the statement that says the church was deeply cruel and hypocritical and abused the name of Jesus in order to torment people like me and many in the church still do. So all of those things are true. And there is a school of of people, of scholars, who say, look, the MAGA phenomenon in the white evangelical church has very deep roots. And they're right. You can trace this back to the split between fundamentalists and, uh, and evangelicals in the 20s. Uh, you can certainly find the politicization of the church beginning in the 70s. And then, you know, Reagan's famous speech to the, what is it, National Council of Evangelicals, I don't remember, where he said, you can't endorse me, but I endorse you. And the big realignment that came after that, there has been a steady process of white evangelicals aligning with the Republican Party in a fairly partisan way. All of that is true, but I am here to say a couple of things. The first is that I believe the alignment with the likes of Donald Trump and his semi-fascist MAGA movement is a next level phenomenon. I don't think there's anything in what's happened historically until, until now that made that inherently necessary. I think at a decision point, sometime around 2016, when Trump gave that famous speech in Iowa, uh, where he said that he could, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue uh, and his followers wouldn't mind. But what he also said at that speech was, He told his evangelical audience, when I'm president, you will have power. Don't forget that. And they didn't. I think at that point, the evangelical base made a choice, which it had not made before, to forsake its its Christian values in an overt way. They didn't really even bother trying to be hypocritical about it as they had in the past. They just unapologetically said, we're tired of losing. We're tired of getting beaten up by the left. This guy's a warrior. He's a champion. So this is our guy. And I think that was a choice and a catastrophically bad choice that has had corrupting effects on the church and the country. Yeah, I think you've just put your finger on what's different about it. 
which is that the the J. Edgar Hoover's of the world and the the uh, the Knights of the KKK never said we don't represent virtue. They never said um, we are actually rogues and if we cheat on our taxes and that's what makes us smart. And they never, you know, they were menacing terrorists at their at, um, some of them. Um, but they always cloaked themselves in the uh, in the the garb of uh, knightly virtue, right? That we are representing traditional uh, conservative Southern uh, white manhood and and uh, courtesy and uh, chivalry. Um, Trump doesn't bother to do any of that. He just says, he says, I'm a rogue. I don't represent anything except myself. Vote for me because power. And for the church to embrace that is a different thing, it seems to me, than for the church to embrace uh, hypocrisy or lies. Yes, and the wonderful scholar, this Christian Demez, who's the author of a, a book called Jesus and John Wayne, points out that if you go and talk to evangelicals who justify their, their support for Trump and MAGA, you'll find very few references to the Bible or to Jesus Christ. You'll find the occasional reference to King David and the occasional reference to King Cyrus— but you won't find Jesus Christ in the equation. And that's pretty significant. The other thing I would say in response to the point you made is, so there's an interesting debate to be had about the roots of all this and the extent to which it's continuity versus uh, discontinuity. Okay, fine. But right now where we are today, I think I can say with a high degree of confidence that restoring the values of liberal democracy will be a lot easier if white Protestantism um, is re-embracing those aspects of Christianity which are core to Christianity and essential to liberal democracy than if it is abandoning and trashing those values. So regardless of how we got here, um, we Christians have to fix this. I can't. You can't. But, but we can and should do what we can to help our Christian friends fix it. We have, we atheistic homosexual Jews, weirdly enough, now have a, an essential stake in trying to help our Christian allies figure this out. That's an interesting note on which to leave things. But before we do, there is a tradition on chatter that we reach into the chatter box and we pull out a question uh, and uh, here I'm going to open the chatterbox here, pull out a question. Jonathan Rausch, who is the best James Bond? I'd have to say Sean Connery. You're going to go with Sean Connery on that? Yeah, he's the template. I realized the, the wonderful uh, performance that Daniel Craig gave in this role and, and how, how he made Bond more human and more modern and... All of those things, yet yet there is something about the icy coolness and insouciant masculinity and an air of ironic self-deprecation 
in the Sean Connery bomb that just seems to me to be one of a kind. We never saw its like before and we'll, we'll never see its like after. We've never seen its like before and we won't see it again. Jonathan Rausch, uh, thank you for joining us on Chatter. Thank you. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Thank you.